Well, good evening, church. If you'll take your copy of God's Word and open with me to the book of 1 Samuel, chapter 16. 1 Samuel 16, the the accounting of David's anointing as king. Now, I confess that I'm uh, very excited tonight, even more excited than normal, which is, I'm often very excited. This is really fun to do. Um, you know, when, uh, when, I, when I study to prepare to preach, uh, I, never, I never study alone. Uh, of course, I study with the Spirit of God, helping me understand the text, and that's what He does in our hearts, I pray, as, as we read. But uh, I also gather a lot of really smart people around me. They're just in books. Most of them are dead. Um, but I get lots of smart people around me. But, you know, it's really a blessing for us as a church because when we get to study the Bible together, God reveals himself to us in, in a fuller, more robust way, right? Because there's things that you see in the scriptures that, that I don't see quite the same way. And, and, and it's a wonderful thing to study together because God works through his people. So I commend the practice of, of studying the scriptures together. Um, But it's been a joy for me because for the last two days, I've actually had the privilege of studying this passage uh, with two men in our church. Uh, Charlie Dollinger and then Pat Walding uh, have done almost all of the preparation with me. And so um, a lot of the insights that you are hearing, I mean, I really feel like that we are, this is a team effort. Um, There were several times, there was a time yesterday where... I noticed something about the text and I got all excited and they both were like, yeah, we already saw that. I was like, oh, okay, well. <laughs> so, uh, so they got there before me on some, on some things. So, um, so we've prayed together, we've studied together, we've we debated several things robustly um, and worked through it in all sorts of ways to try to organize it and present it uh, in a way that's helpful to you and faithful to the text. Um, and so I just, I just wanted to, to mention that. And if that's something that you're interested in, come talk to me and let me know. So uh, with that being said, I've asked uh, Charlie to read our passage for us tonight. It's the entire chapter, um, 1 Samuel 16. So Charlie? 1 Samuel chapter 16, starting with verse 1. The Lord said to Samuel, How long will you grieve over Saul, since I rejected him from being king of Israel? Fill your horn with oil and go. I will send you to Jesse the Bethlehemite. For I provided for myself a king among his sons. And Samuel said, How can I go? If Saul hears it, he will kill me. And the Lord said, Take a heifer with you and say, I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. And invite Jesse to the sacrifice, and I will show you what you shall do. And you shall anoint for me him whom I declare to you. Samuel did what the Lord commanded and came to Bethlehem. The elders of the city came to meet him trembling and said, Do you come peaceably? And he said, Peaceably. I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. Consecrate yourselves and come with me to the sacrifice. And he consecrated Jesse and his sons and invited them to the sacrifice. When they came, he looked on Eliab and thought, Surely the Lord's anointed is before him. But the Lord said to Samuel, Do not look on his appearance or on the height of his stature, because I have rejected him. For the Lord sees not as man sees. 
Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. Then Jesse called Abinadab and made him pass before Samuel. And he said, Neither has the Lord chosen this one. Then Jesse made Shammah pass by, and he said, Neither has the Lord chosen this one. And Jesse made seven of his sons pass before Samuel. And Samuel said to Jesse, The Lord has not chosen these. Then Samuel said to Jesse, Are all your sons here? And he said, There remains yet the youngest, but behold, he is keeping the sheep. And Samuel said to Jesse, Send and get him, for we will not sit down until he comes here. And he went and brought him in. Now he was ruddy and had beautiful eyes and was handsome. And the Lord said, Arise, anoint him, for this is he. Then Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the midst of his brothers. And the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon David from that day forward. And Samuel rose up and went to Ramah. Now the Spirit of the Lord departed from Saul, and a harmful spirit from the Lord tormented him. And Saul's servant said to him, Behold, now a harmful spirit from God is tormenting you. Let our Lord now command your servants who are before you to seek out a man who is skillful in playing the lyre. And when the harmful spirit from God is upon you, he will play it and you will be well. So Saul said to his servants, Provide for me a man who can play well and bring him to me. One of the young men answered, Behold, I have seen a son of Jesse, the Bethlehemite, who is skillful in playing, a man of power, a man of war, prudent in speech, and a man of good presence, and the Lord is with him. Therefore Saul sent messengers to Jesse and said, Send me David, your son, who is with the sheep. And Jesse took a donkey, laden with bread and a skin of wine and a young goat, and sent them by David his son to Saul. And David came to Saul and entered his service. And Saul loved him greatly, and he became his armor bearer. And Saul sent to Jesse, saying, Let David remain in my service, for he has found favor in my sight. And whenever the harmful spirit from God was upon Saul, David took the lyre and played it with his hand. So Saul was refreshed and was well, and the harmful spirit departed from him. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we ask that tonight that you would accomplish your purposes for our lives. We pray that your kingdom would be built further, that we would love our sin less, love ourselves less, and love your glory more. So Father, to that end, I pray that you would remove me from this process and that you would let my words fall to the ground, blow away, and be forgotten. No one needs to hear from man. We want to hear from God. So, Father, bless us in that regard. We plead and we pray for, for you to do this. And we ask this in your name. Amen. Well, if you recall from our study through the book of 1 Samuel, we are watching Israel slowly make a complete train wreck of its future. Through a number of worldly compromises, some of them have been big and some of them have been small, Israel has again and again chosen sin over God. They've chosen themselves over the Lord. And they've done this again and again and again. The big sin, of course, is that Israel has rejected God as their king and they demanded instead to choose their own king. 
A king like the nations, a king that will go out and fight their battles for them, as if God, the Lord of hosts, was not qualified to do so. And so they demanded a king, and God gave them over to their desires, and boy, did they get what they asked for in Saul. Tall King Saul is a king like the nations, indeed, and he looks like one, and he acts like one. We've seen repeatedly him disobey God in some very stupid, very ridiculous, almost startling sorts of ways. So much so that God has now rejected him and his entire family, his whole lineage, from being king over Israel. Now what's strange about this is that the Lord, though he has rejected Saul and left Saul in power, or left him with his spirit, he's going to leave him in power for decades, actually. Many more years, though he will have to rule without word from God and without the blessing of Yahweh. So chapter 15, what we uh, did recently, it ends on a really, really dark note. So not, not only do we end, if you remember, if you weren't here, uh, it's very interesting. The prophet of the Lord is hacking up a king with a sword, right? You can't say the Bible's boring. Don't want to hear it, <laughs> okay? All right. So it ends with, um, with, with Samuel doing what Saul was supposed to do, destroy King Agag. But what we have to notice is that judging by Samuel's reaction, things are very, very bleak now that God has rejected Saul. Now, when you're reading the Bible, you have to pay attention to the emotional flow of the text, right? And so that's what's happening here. Samuel's beginning, and he is he's despairing. Things are bleak. I mean, think about it. Israel has rejected God and instead chosen a human king, and he's a coward and selfish. And instead of destroying them, God has actually been merciful and he's given them a king and he's actually continued to provide for them mercifully through this flawed man. But the problem is coming to a head and now Israel's experiment with King Saul is failing. Israel is in a sense now left without God as their king, and now they've got this king, Saul, who has been left by God. They are left. They, things are bleak. They are dark in Israel. And so we can understand Samuel's despair. He's distressed over the nation's spiritual condition, their physical prospects, and their political well-being. I mean, he must be thinking, what's next for Israel? I mean, are they going to be destroyed by their enemies? Are they going to be driven out of the promised land? Are they going to turn on each other and implode in civil strife as they actually later do? Or what about God? How do they relate to God now? What is God going to do with his covenant people? Is he going to destroy them and start over? I mean, if you read the Old Testament, I'm reading uh, the book of Numbers right now, and constantly God's like, move over. I'm going to destroy them all and start over, right? Well, is, is God going to do that with, with Israel? Is, it, would, is he going to forsake them? Is he just going to leave them to languish for hundreds of years in their sin? What, what's God going to do? Well, it seems to me that once again, God is setting the stage. And he's using human sinfulness and human foolishness to do it. God is setting the stage for a new hero. But who would he be? And what would he be like? 
Well, that brings us to our main idea from this passage tonight. The main thing that we'll see tonight is this. In spite of our rejection of God as king, God has graciously determined to provide for himself a righteous king. One who will rule and bless his people. But here's the thing. It's not who you would expect. That's the clincher. As we walk through this text tonight, I'd like to draw your attention to four, I'm just calling them surprising lessons about how God rules and works in his kingdom. The first one is this. God is willing to clean up our mess. You could say God is willing to get involved in our mess. As I said, our text begins with a sad prophet, a grieving Samuel. 15.35 ends with a sad Samuel. 16.1 begins with a grieving Samuel. We've already mentioned several reasons for this, right? But primarily, he's grieving because of Israel's bleak future. It could also be that he's in a significant theological crisis and trying to come to terms with a God who will select a king and then reject that king. Right? That, as we've talked about in recent weeks, that's hard to get our minds around. But the key thing to note is that the situation seems very, very hopeless. It's hopeless until God speaks. Do you see that in 16.1? It is a mess until God speaks into that mess and then everything changes. You'll see, and you'll see this in your lives, that when we see dead ends, God sees opportunities. When you see suffering and struggle, God sees change. When you see a hopeless mess, God sees an, op- an opportunity for grace. Even if that mess is your fault. Brothers and sisters, let me remind you tonight that there is no situation under the sun. There's no circumstance in your life that is so bleak and so hopeless or so mundane or so despairing that God cannot, and if you're a believer, will not work. He's working in your situation. He is the great redeemer. That is his name. That's what he does. Maybe you're here tonight and you've been beat up by your circumstances. Or maybe you've been beat up by your relationships or choices that you've made. So much so that you're tempted to lose hope. You're tempted to despair. Brothers and sisters, if you're in Christ, do not lose hope. There is the promise that God is working in you. Psalm 27.14 says, It says, wait for the Lord. Be strong and let your heart take courage. Wait for the Lord. But in this situation, in this text, don't forget, this whole mess was Israel's fault, right? This was not some hard circumstance that someone else imposed on them. This was their own fault, right? They were suffering because of their own foolish decisions. Their king, who they picked, they elected, he had flopped. And it was their fault. They'd made their own bed, and now they had to lay in it, right? That's how this works. But even still, they were finding that you cannot, you cannot out-sin God's grace. You don't, you don't have enough power to do that. Because His grace is greater than sin. I can't help but be reminded of an episode from the sitcom Everybody Loves Raymond. You don't have to have seen it, right? Um, in, 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 the, in one of the episodes, one of the main characters is, uh, is a housewife and mother named Deborah. 
And she decides that this year she wants to have Thanksgiving at her house, right? They, they, had, always, um, they always had Thanksgiving at her very manipulative and intrusive in-law's house across the street. And she decided she was going to put her foot down and they were going to have Thanksgiving dinner at her house. Well, this did not go over well in their household, and it did not go over well with her mother-in-law. And uh, to make matters worse, and to her mother-in-law, her mother-in-law's name was Marie, to her chagrin, it was very well known that Deborah was a very mediocre cook. Right? She could do it, but not, not as well as, as her husband's mother. And so the whole episode chronicles poor Deborah's misadventures in trying to prepare a proper Thanksgiving dinner that lives up to her mother-in-law's expectations. Well, as you can imagine, and as it often does in real life, everything went wrong. It began with Deborah, who for some reason decided to break one of the most important Thanksgiving traditions, and that of the turkey, right? Instead of, uh, instead of having a turkey, she decided that she would cook a fish for Thanksgiving dinner, a trout fish for Thanksgiving dinner, which her idiot husband accidentally ran through the dishwasher, right? So it was steamed trout for Thanksgiving dinner. So you can just imagine the mother-in-law is just loving it, right? She's sitting back and she's, she's watching this and she's offering her services constantly, you know, hoping to swoop in and save the day, but Deborah will not have any of it. She refuses all help. She explicitly says, do not bring anything. Do not cook anything. Well, you can guess how this plays out. Thanksgiving dinner was mostly a disaster until Marie burst in the door at the right moment with a perfectly cooked turkey that took the place of the steamed soapy <laughs> trout, right? So often, this is how the Lord works in our lives. Offering help offering counsel, willing to provide what we need, yet we arrogantly insist on doing it our own way. And what do we end up with? But a steamy, soapy, steamed trout. And yet, because of God's grace, God is much more gracious than Marie, Instead of, because of God's grace, he's still willing to enter into our mess and work for our own good, even though we have despised him. Is there any better way for us to see this than the stunning reality that God became a man and dwelt among us? I mean, think of it, friends. In Christ, God took on flesh and he entered into our mess. A world of sickness and pain, of sin and death and relationships and difficulties, all of which was brought upon because of our own stupid decisions. Christ came and he experienced the worst of sin so that we would be made new. I mean, the history of Israel and the history of all of humanity proves to us that if we are left to rule ourselves, we will destroy ourselves. That's basically what Israel did. That's what pre-Noah did. That's what Babel was. I mean, we will destroy ourselves if God doesn't help us. But there's hope because of God. And you can hear this hope even at the end of verse 1. God is entering into Israel's mess with these words. I have provided for myself a king. Do you see that there in verse 1? 
Israel had rejected God and chosen Saul, a rash, cowardly, baggage-hiding, selfish king like the nations. And they were suffering because of it. But God is going to make it right. Even though they sinned, he's willing to still make it right. But this time, God was going to step in and God was going to do the cooking, right? He was going to do the choosing. This time, the king was going to be God's man, the man of God's own choosing. And this king, God's kings, they come from Bethlehem. Brothers and sisters, do you see the effect that this can have on our hearts? No matter how bleak your situation is, no matter how much your sin has contributed to the problems in your life, no matter what sort of mess you're dealing with, God has proven that he is willing to enter into your mess, even at great cost to himself, to save you and to redeem you. So we should humble ourselves. If you remember the beginning of 1 Samuel, in, uh, in, in the, the opening prayer, it says, So talk no more so very proudly. and Let not arrogance come from your mouth. For the Lord is a God of knowledge. Let us humble ourselves before him. Put aside our steamed trout and sit down at the table he's prepared for us. A second thing we can see from this text, right, is that we are prone to repeat our sin. We are so prone to repeat our sin. We are a terribly uh, short-memoried um, people. So, so God is speaking to Samuel, and he speaks to him in his depression, and he lifts him out of it. He says, all right, get your horn, fill it up with oil. There's a new king in Israel. Get on down to Bethlehem because I've got a new king that has been selected. Well, this is disturbing for Samuel because apparently he's afraid. Things are so bad between him and Saul that he's worried that if he goes somewhere, they may kill him to stay in good graces uh, with King Saul. But the Lord, as he so often does, provides a way through sacrifice. So Samuel goes down to the house of Jesse, the Bethlehemite. And Samuel gets right down to business, selecting a king, and goes to the house of Jesse. And apparently he tells Jesse something about this arrangement, and he asks Jesse to bring all of his sons before him. And look what happens here in, in verse 6. As soon as he saw Eliab, right, the firstborn, the oldest son, what does Samuel do? What's he say? What's the text say? Look at it. Surely the Lord's anointed is before him. Do you, do you see what Samuel just did? Do you, do you see what's happening, right? Notice, you got to notice it in the text. Samuel is thinking, now that looks like a king. I feel like we've just done this, right? Didn't we just read about this and didn't this cause a big problem, right? Did, I mean, think about what just happened. Samuel, the man of God, is repeating, about to repeat the same problem. Who else looked like a king? Saul, right? And how did that go for Israel? Right? What a mess. Here we have Samuel, the man of God. He's here to select a new king because they needed to replace a terrible king that looked like a king. And what does he do? He said, that guy looks like a king. <laughs> he does the same thing. He presumes upon the guy that outwardly looks like a king. Oh, what short memories we sinners have. Falling into the same sins again and again. How slow are we to learn? If God was to leave it up to us, would we ever get it right? Ever? 
How much time have you wasted having to relearn the same lessons again and again from the Lord? How many sins have you committed tens of thousands of times and you're still suffering because of it? How much growth have we missed because we failed to advance and move on past the elementary things of the faith? I mean, think about it. This was, not, this was Samuel, right? This was not just Joe Schmo Israel, right? This was, this was not some nobody who made the mistake. It was God's guy who made the mistake. And if not even Samuel is wise enough to judge for himself or to act alone, who among us can? Oh, friends, how pitifully dependent must we be upon the grace of God for wisdom? There is no wisdom apart from the fear of the Lord. We would never get anywhere if it was not for God's sovereign interruption of grace in our lives. So let's depend upon that and look for that. But all this is really just paving the way for the main point of this chapter. Which brings us to another observation. God prefers to use very small tools. This really covers verses 7 through 13. But if you think about starting in verse 6, Samuel has another surprise waiting for him, right? Because even though Samuel was sure that Jesse's oldest and tallest and best looking, presumably, was Eliab, that he was surely the next king, the Lord famously responds there in verse 7. Look down with me. Do not look on his appearance or on the height of his stature, because I have rejected him. For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. God is looking for something totally different than what man is looking for. And boy, does he go to great lengths to prove that in this text. We have here what, have, what must have been a very awkward parade, right? Jesse calls each one of his sons to come and stand before Samuel. And each time, Samuel says, the Lord has not chosen this one, right? The Lord has not chosen this one. And we see it seven times. Seven times. The pattern is repeated over and over. And the author makes it clear to us what is going on. He's pointing it out. Seven times. Not the one. No, not the one. No, that's not the one. No, not the one. No, not the one. No, that's not the one. No, that's not the one. <laughs> Seven times to emphasize how completely unable we are to master the ways of God. It appears to me that God likes drama. God loves the drama, right? He's making a dramatic point to underscore how incapable we are of seeing the way that God sees. Human wisdom, right, solish wisdom is completely inadequate for directing the kingdom of God. God's plans are totally different. They are so much higher than ours. His ways are so much higher than our ways that we can never even dream up what he has in store unless he were to reveal it to us. Brothers and sisters, is this not humbling for how we perceive God as we interpret our daily circumstances? We may know a great many things about the character of God, but that knowledge does not make us experts, as if we could predict the ways that he will work in history. So talk no more so very proudly. Let not arrogance come from your mouth. For the Lord is a God of knowledge. God does not consult you for counsel. He does not check in with your plans for your life. 
He's not interested in your ideas for the ways that things should be. If you find yourself in some perplexing circumstance, right? How many times have you found yourself in a situation where you would say, I have no idea what God is doing. I, I, I don't have any idea of how he's going to actually work this for good. I have no idea. Perhaps you're there now. Or perhaps you may find the way that God has ordered your life, maybe not terrible, but certainly inconvenient. Maybe a little bit odd. Like maybe the guy you married is not the guy you thought you were marrying and that is affecting your life in a significant way, right? Well, that shouldn't surprise us. God is God and we are not. We cannot only quote Jeremiah 29, 11, For I know the plans that I have for you, declares the Lord, plans to prosper you, without also remembering Isaiah 55. For my thoughts are not your thoughts. Neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so my ways are higher than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts. But I also can't help but notice here this building pattern of suspense as we're waiting, where's the king? I mean, where is the king? And not the one, not the one, not the one. I mean, where is the king? If you read the Bible carefully, and if you read it in big chunks, all the way from the beginning of the Bible, all the way to the end, all the way to Christ, there is a feeling of suspense, a feeling of anticipation, which is why you should read all the Bible. But starting in Genesis chapter 3, we, with the great promise of the gospel coming, this one, this one who would crush, the seed who would crush the head of the serpent, we're, we're left asking, where is he? When is he coming? What is he going to be like? Who, when is he going to come and undo all the work of the serpent? That's the question of the Bible. Who is going to rescue God's people? Who is the seed that will finally crush the serpent's head? If you read and if you pay attention, you might think, is it Cain? Well, no, he crushes another man's head with a rock. It's not Cain. Is it Noah? Right? He rescued people, some. Is it Abraham? Is it Isaac, right? the promised one? Is it, is it Moses? He delivered a great number of people. What about Joshua? Or was it Gideon? Or, or was it Samson? Or was it Saul, the king? This anticipation seems to be building as we watch the parade of Jesse's sons. Where is he? Where is the long-awaited one who will finally rescue and rule Israel? All throughout the Old Testament, even with the coming of David, the great king of Israel, we hear again and again, not the one, not the one, not the one. As you're reading the genealogies at the beginning of the gospel, especially the gospel of Matthew, you need to have that in the back of your head. Not the one. That's not the one. No, that's not the one. And then finally, Jesus, right? Think about this awkward parade of sinful man all throughout the Bible, all throughout the Old Testament as we await the Messiah. A parade of prophets, priests, kings, warriors, judges, saviors, little messiahs, all of which did great things. They were definitely used by God, but boy, were they sinful. Not the one, not the one. Anyways, Samuel, Samuel's trying to figure out who is the one, right? He's, he's trying to figure out who the king is. So he comes to the end of Jesse's sons, and he's perplexed. There's still no king. Look at chapter 16, 11. Then Samuel said to Jesse, are all of your sons here? Well, come to find out, 
There's a little brother that they did not even mention. Any youngest kids in here? You're thinking, that was me, man. They didn't even remember I was on vacation. (laughs) I was the oldest. It wasn't a problem. The text goes out of the way to highlight how unimportant David is. (laughs) I mean, it gives us details about how unimportant David is in the eyes of the world. He was so inconsequential, so young, so small, so unimportant that Jesse doesn't even bother to mention him as a son, right? Doesn't even make the list. In fact, Jesse's youngest son is so obscure that his name is not even mentioned until after he's already anointed king there in verse 13. And what's more, he's a shepherd. He's a lowly shepherd. And when they finally send for this final son of Jesse, who has no name of, no, of, of importance, the text describes his appearance in verse 12. Well, we take that, I think, the guys, we take that um, to mean that David is young. He's boyishly attractive, right? And then finally, Samuel gets the word there in verse 12, Arise, anoint him, for this is he. Church, our God is full of surprises, isn't he? Can you imagine how surprised Jesse was? Or how surprised his brothers were? Or how surprised... Samuel was, right? This is what one commentator called the God of who would have thought episodes, right? A who would have thunk it sort of situation. Don't you see it here? We have a God who completely shatters human expectations and standards. His mode of operation is in a way that you would not expect. That's how he works. He surprises Our God loves to choose the most unlikely and the most surprising and the least equipped people to accomplish his greatest purposes. I mean, just think of it. We have David, the surprise shepherd king from Bethlehem. The surprise shepherd king from Bethlehem. The man of God, the man that God sends to rule his people is not what anybody expected. Brothers and sisters, even though we can not predict the providences of God, we can know his character. And we can know some things for sure. That he has a preference for using small, weak, humble people to do his work. So talk no more so very proudly. And let not arrogance come from your mouth. Remember Isaiah 66 too. All these things my hands have made, says the Lord. And so all these things came to be. But this is the one to whom I will look. He who is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at my word. Church, God does not care about outward appearances. In fact, he's biased towards the unattractive, towards the weak, especially those who know it and who are okay with it. God is attracted to weak, small, humble people who depend upon him. My family owns a couple pianos. I don't play the piano, so it's kind of silly. One is a family, is a famed family heirloom. And our family is a Steinway, a great, beautiful Steinway piano that's been passed down through, through several generations. 
If you know anything about pianos, Steinways are generally the choice of the world's top pianists and are considered to be the greatest pianos in the world. And it's a piano that's sitting at my uncle's house outside of Nashville. But my family also owns a multicolored toy piano. I hear it played at very strange hours of the day. It's a 15 by 11 inch, 25 key, Melissa and Doug, multicolored piano that stays in our playroom and makes a variety of piano-ish sounds. Okay, now I would like for you to imagine Lightning Charlie at these pianos for a moment. Let's say, for the sake of illustration, that I had both of these pianos at my house, and Charlie was at my house, and I asked him to come and play a few songs. And let's say that he sat down at the great Steinway, 88 keys, right? He sat down at the great, we had the great Steinway there, and then we had the 25 key Melissa and Doug little tink, tink, tink keyboard, right? Now we all know that Charlie could sit down at the Steinway and wow us with that rumbling rendition of how great thou art. Clearly that takes skill and talent. But then, imagine if Lightning Charlie went over and sat down. He'd have to do it on his knees because it's only 15 inches tall. Everybody pause and just picture that for a moment. <laughs> right? So picture Lightning Charlie down at the 15-inch, 25-key piano. And just imagine that he played the exact same song in a way that was equally as moving and as rousing as the Steinway. Which would take more skill? Which shows off the musician's talent the most? It'd be using the toy piano. I was thinking about this. I was listening to Eric Clapton play the kazoo. I'm like, of course he makes the kazoo cool, right? God has a knack for selecting mediocre instruments in order to display his talent for being God. God has a knack for selecting mediocre instruments in order to display his talent for being God. If you think about it, God actually, he intentionally hides his glory in jars of clay so that no one would look at the pot and be like, wow, that's a cool pot, right? It's to highlight the beauty of the treasure in the clay pot. So how, how can we apply this? Well, I think we should at least take this at face value as we remember not merely to judge by outward appearances and to value the heart. The New Testament teaches constantly. God's, God cares about our heart, not external behavior, not outward appearances primarily. We should be on guard against our tendency to be just like Samuel, the great man of God who is biased by outward appearances in the way that we interact with others. You remember when we were in James, uh, we were warned of the danger of partiality. And it's all throughout the book of Proverbs, all throughout the wisdom literature, the danger of how much God hates partiality. But I think we can take this even further. Look back down at verse 7 again. But the Lord said to Samuel, Do not look on his appearance or on the height of his stature, because I have rejected him. For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. So, so God tells us that we see the outward appearance, but he sees the heart. We, we, we can't see the heart. Only God can see the heart. Well, I don't know about you, but my eyes are only good at seeing physical things. I'm not good at seeing hearts. I struggle to see spiritual things. 
We can't tell who God is going to use. We can't tell how he's going to work out a situation. We don't know how he's going to build his kingdom. We don't know his plans for the United States of America. We, don't, we can't see these things. We don't know who's going to respond to preaching, who's going to heed biblical counsel, and who will not. My eyes can't see those things. So what do I do? Trust the one who can. If we can't judge by outward appearances, how can we judge? Well, that's just it. We need eyes of faith to trust and see what only God can see, what He is doing. The Bible says explicitly to walk by faith and not by sight. Brothers and sisters, look not only to what is seen, but to what is unseen. How much do we really believe the reality? How much have you thought about this, what we sang about tonight? When we all get to heaven, what sort of rejoicing that will be? That will change the way you face difficulties. That will change your struggle with depression. When you think about heaven, when you consider what is unseen. A final point from this text is that God works in surprising ways. The final section of this chapter shows us this. Beginning in verse 14, we have an incredibly abrupt transition away from Samuel and David to King Saul. Verse 14 is, it's really like a hinge in this text. And if you read this passage carefully, you can't help but notice how drastic and how sharp the contrast is between Saul and David. Right? So the author did that for a reason. On the one hand, we have David, God's new king, who has the Spirit of the Lord. Right? You see that literally in verse uh, 13. Right? The Spirit of the Lord rushed upon David. Right? He has the Spirit of the Lord. And then on the other hand, we have Saul, the failed king of Israel, from whom the Spirit of the Lord has departed. We see that in verse 14, right? So not only does Saul no longer enjoy God's Spirit, but the text goes even further. He did not just not have God's Spirit, he had an evil spirit from God, right? So this is a triple, triple negative, I got a double negative that's getting in there. He's a failed king from whom the Spirit of the Lord had departed, and now he had a harmful spirit from the Lord that tormented him. Do you see how clearly the author is contrasting God's king, who's David, and Israel's king, who's Saul? Here, church, we see the surprising and the ironic providence of God at work. Here we have the most powerful man in all of Israel being tormented by an evil spirit from God. You can do nothing without God. Your well-being cannot even hold together without God. And he just so happens to call David. <laughs> there are no just so happens in the Bible. And there are no just so happens in your life. He just so happens to call David the shepherd king. Who just so happens to have the very spirit of the Lord upon him. To come and minister to him through music. And what does God do? God's with him. So he blesses David's ministry. So it works and it helps Saul. Do, do you see the irony here? Just think about this for a moment. Israel chose for themselves a king, and they got Saul. And he was a total disaster and was rejected by God, and now he needs help, right? He's in trouble. Just imagine a manic, imploding politician. So God providentially sends his newly anointed king to give that help. So here we have God's new king ministering to Israel's old king and giving him grace and giving him mercy. We see God actually being merciful to Saul and therefore merciful to Israel 
by keeping David, by keeping Saul through David's ministry from imploding in spite of their sin. So the chapter ends with God's man, King David, standing in the courts of King Saul. And to me, to me, it seems like you can hear God laughing in the background. The text literally says that Saul called for, King, for David to come stay with him. I mean, do, you, do you think this is chance? Friends, God's providential power in your life is thorough. We have made a great mess of our lives through sin. Each one of us has fully submit, foolishly submitted to other lords. We have despised the rule of Yahweh. But praise God, he has not left us in our sin. He has entered into our mess. And God has provided for himself a king from Bethlehem. A king who would not and did not fail. We know the story of David. David failed royally. But God provided for himself a king who would not fail. My friends, appearances are not always what they seem. God's ways are higher than your ways. They are higher than our ways. And no matter what we can see, we must remember that at this very moment, God has a plan in motion to establish his kingdom among his people that is ruled by his forever king. And that will be a kingdom of joy and happiness. Like David, that king came as a surprise king from Bethlehem. So turn to him and worship him and submit to him now. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the beauty of your word. As we read a text like this with so many interconnecting parts, we say, no man could have written this. This is surely the word from the Lord. So Father, we pray that tonight, that as we have to some measure seen the beauty of Christ, seen the promise of the covenant, seen our need for a Savior, Lord, I pray that you would help us to respond to you and worship you in all that we do. And we'll trust this to you. And we ask this in your name. Amen.